Turn, if you would, to the book of Romans. I, I trust everyone had a good uh, holiday, two weeks off of uh, our class, so I hope we remember what we're supposed to do. You hate to say that certain books of the Bible are better or more important than other books of the Bible, because it is all God's word, it is all inspired by God. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a book that is more important to the development of church doctrine, church history, than the book of Romans. It has been said that the book of Romans and a remembrance of what it means has brought about all the great reformations in the church, starting with the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther examined the book of Romans and got a new vision, understanding of what the gospel was all about. So we are going to spend most of this year working through the book of Romans. The last time I taught it, it took uh, 34 lessons. I don't know if I'll be faster or slower. You just don't ever know. I do know the last time that I taught it in here, I had a couple show up who had left. They had moved away. And when they moved away, I was teaching the book of Romans. And when they came back, I was starting it again. So if you're here, I apologize. I don't remember who the couple was, but they only came back when I taught Romans. I also understand that uh, Mighty Men uh, is doing uh, Romans. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the uh, individual who teaches Mighty Men, Ken Miller, is my brother-in-law. So I will correct any mistakes that he makes. <laughs> he, he is going much quicker than I am. He's going to finish it in 11 weeks. So uh, pretty soon we'll be out of touch with each other. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just the saying hello. Today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at who wrote the book, who did he write it to, and what is the main theme of the book. In fact, we're going to do something a little different uh, from when I've taught the lesson before. The last time I taught it, I ended it with a nice summary going chapter to chapter through the whole book to talk about, to remind us what the book was about. I'm going to start with the chapter-by-chapter -chapter summary. So we are, in fact, going to cover the whole book today at a high level. I'm doing that because we need to remember that these are letters. The church at Rome received a letter from Paul. And this is my vision of how it works, okay? Somebody delivers the letter, and we see in chapter 16 who actually delivers it. She delivers it to somebody who's the head of the church. He opens it, and he reads it, and he goes, wow. And he calls the whole church together, and he says, listen to this. And he reads the letter out loud to the whole group. And they all sit there and go, wow, that's cool. Do it again. So he reads it again. By my estimate, in, at least in English, it would take you about 40 minutes to read the whole thing out loud. Not that hard. So he reads it again. And they sit there and go, wow. What did he mean when he said this? What did he mean when he said that? And then from that point on, they collectively would sit there and go, what did he mean by verse 32? Now you know, right? There were no verses. There were no chapters. It was just a letter. But to help us understand it, we've broken it up into chapters and verses. 
so that we can point to certain ones. So I can imagine somebody saying, what did it mean when he says there is a righteousness that is by faith? For What does it mean that he gave them over? What does it mean that they, we are without excuse? What? And that's what they would do. And they would tear the letter apart piece by piece, wrestling with the truths that God is revealing through Paul. And that's what we're going to do. Since I'm not going to read the whole thing today, we're going to summarize the whole thing to give us an idea of what the entire book is about. But first off, we need to meet a guy by the name of Paul. If you would, turn back to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 8. If you remember two years ago, was it two years ago? Yes, two years ago, we worked our way through the book of Acts. And the second half of the book of Acts is really about Paul and his ministry. The early church was formed. The Jews got ticked off at them. They grabbed a guy by the name of Stephen and said, recant. He said, no. So they stoned him to death. And there's this casual mention that there was a guy standing around named Saul who held their garments while they stoned Stephen. And that is our first introduction to Saul. Not a real good guy. We then begin to see that he started on a mission, chapter 8 of the book of Acts, and Saul approved of his execution. This would be Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Why did Paul, oops, why did Saul persecute the church because he loved God so much you see we like to think that wow he's a wretched individual you know he's evil horrible he's doing what he thinks God wants him to do God had revealed in the scripture his will what we would call the Old Testament what to the Jew would be all the Testament, okay? He had revealed it, and here came this upstart by the name of Jesus, who they killed, and somebody's saying was resurrected, but who believes them? And his followers, Jesus' followers, are proclaiming something different. They're proclaiming you don't have to sacrifice in the temple. You don't have to do these things in order to be right with God. You, well, that's just bad. If you're a good Jew, this is your life. You have to do these things. There's an interesting discussion that comes about in uh, theological works, um, which kind of sometimes reminds me why I'm not a theologian. They have a discussion about whether Paul later, Paul, was a Jew who happened to use some Greek ideas or whether he was so steeped in Greek ideas and he happened to incorporate some Jewish ones. And the idea, I mean, the answer obviously is yes, he's both. This is the world that he lives in. He is a Jew of the Jews, as we're going to see in just a moment. He is persecuting the church. So, Saul is out to get him, chapter 9. Then something happens. Chapter 9 of the book of Acts. But Paul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus. So he's going over the Golan Heights, past the Sea of Galilee, or past the Sea of Galilee, over the Golan Heights, into Damascus, because he's heard there were Christians there. They have fled Israel. He's going to go get them wherever they are. By golly, he is zealous. He is zealous for the truth. So he is riding his donkey on his way to Damascus, and zap, literally, 
zap. He is blinded by a bright light. A voice comes and talks to him and said, what the heck are you doing? That's a very loose translation. (laughs) Why do you persecute me? Now, it is interesting when we think about it, the fact that Saul was persecuting the church and Christ acknowledged the church as being his body. You're persecuting the church. You're persecuting me. Why are you doing it? And he hears this voice, the voice of God. And he is taken into the town blind. He can't see anything. And for three days he doesn't eat. He just sits there. What do you think he thought about for three days? Then God tells a believer to go talk to Saul. Now, that's got to be an assignment you don't want, okay? If there was ever walking into the lion's den on purpose, that's it, okay? You know that guy that's out to kill all the Christians? Go have a chat with him. He needs to hear the word. And sure enough, Saul is converted, which brings actually an interesting phenomena Because after he's converted, the Jews tried to kill him. I mean, he sold out. Here he is, the most zealous of them, and he's gone to the dark side. So his followers, who were probably just as zealous as he was, say, ooh, we've got to kill him. So the Christians sneak him out of town in order to protect him. And he comes to Jerusalem. Go ahead. How does his attitude compare with an Islamic jihadist? We could get into all kinds of trouble with that one. Let's just say he was converted. It's the same zeal. I mean, it's the same idea. I am doing what I believe God wants me to do, and God whacked him. Go ahead. No, he'd be at least 30s in his 30s. I'll have to look that up. I don't know how old he is when all that's happening. Go ahead. The question is, what about the people that were with him who heard the voice, were not struck blind, what did they do with that knowledge? You know, we could have a real interesting discussion about that. In chapter 9, when we talk about being called, hmm, they had heard something. I'm not sure they understood what they heard. Okay? They certainly didn't spend three days meditating on what they had heard. Okay, so he comes to Jerusalem and, of course, the church is scared to death of him. Wouldn't you be? He's a spy. That's what he is. But sure enough, the apostles welcome him. Barnabas, and what does Barnabas' name mean? Encourager, son of encouragement or something like that. He encouraged Paul. So... Saul, in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, is renamed Paul. Remember all of this, okay? Remember who he is who's writing this letter. What else do we know about him? Well, in Philippians, he gives us a resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, There wasn't anyone more Jewish than Saul. His credentials were impeccable. In regard to the law of Pharisee, you know, we spent all this time when we worked through the Gospels looking at the Pharisees as the evil, wicked people because they're the ones that Christ is always coming in conflict with or at least one of the groups that he's always coming in conflict with. And we have grown up thinking rightfully so, 
that the Pharisees were a bunch of legalistic, tough guys. The Pharisees had read the Old Testament, they had seen the corruption in the society around them, and they said, we need to get back to the law, the law, the law, the law, so that we won't be tainted by the corruption of our society. It started out as a good idea, sort of. But somewhere in there, they lost the idea of faith. They lost the idea that what God is interested in is a change of heart and not just external behavior. They had mastered the external behavior. I mean, they looked good to the Jewish community to the point that they looked at the rest of the Jewish community and they thumbed their noses at them and said, it's a shame you're not as good as I am. And that's Saul who became Paul. Keep that in mind. As for zeal persecuting the church, persecuting the church, it was an indication of how zealous he believed things. It is interesting, I heard a uh, professor one time, and even he said this half-heartedly, looking back fondly on the Thirty Years' War. You do that, right? Where the Protestants were fighting the Catholics, and he said, well, at least they believed enough to fight over something. At least they believed something. How do we, how ought we, display our zeal today? We are not called to go persecute anyone. Remember that long discussion we had when we, last year when we talked about entering the promised land and they were told to wipe everybody out? That is not a command that we are given, okay? We're not here to wipe out anybody. We're not here to persecute anybody, but we are to demonstrate zeal. Romans chapter 12. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Legalistic righteousness. What does that mean? It means here's the list and I kept the list. End of story. I've got a list that's bigger than your list. I keep my list. I am perfect I am righteous if that's what it takes to be righteous. We'll have more discussion next week about Martin Luther. But you see, this is where Martin Luther got in trouble. Martin Luther was a monk. In fact, he said he was more monk than anybody else had ever been a monk. If there was ever a monkish monk, it was Martin Luther. Martin Luther, being a good Catholic, would go to confession. Now, I don't know how often Catholics today go to confession. Maybe the good ones go once a week. You hear about the ones that go at Easter, you know, just to kind of take care of the whole year. Martin Luther went to confession every day for three hours. He was driving the other monks and the priest crazy. Can you imagine listening to someone's problems for three hours and the next day listening to them again? But you see, Martin Luther knew that the Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he knew he didn't do it. The priest would tell Martin Luther, go away and come back when you have something real to confess. But Martin Luther knew that by legalistic righteousness, he was not faultless. And that's what led him to the book of Romans and what led him to understand the message which is the gospel. But whatever was to my profit, Paul says, I now considered loss for the sake of Christ. His exact word is dung, poop, as we say around our house. It is worthless. Paul had gone to the best school. 
He had been raised as righteous as you could be, as Jewish as you could be. He was a Roman citizen. He had all the credentials you could possibly want. And he gets to the point where he says, all of that is worthless. All I want to do is know Christ and his suffering. This is Paul, this is Saul, who writes the book of Romans. It is interesting. There are people who debate probably every book in the Bible who wrote it. Okay? You get over to Hebrews and it just drives people crazy. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? There's very little debate about who wrote the book of Romans. Uh, I read an author who said he had read of two people who actually questioned who wrote it, but they were a vast minority. Paul wrote the book of Romans. He probably was at Corinth when he wrote it. Do you remember after his conversion, after his uh, settling in, he went on a series of missionary journeys, three of them to be exact, and he set up a church at Corinth. And three or four years ago, we went through First and Second Corinthians, which were his letters to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth, well, it was a church in the midst of a pretty messed up society. Corinth was Greek, it was Roman, it was a trading city, it was a merchant, it was a seaport, it was as multicultural as you could get, unless you want to talk about Romans, Rome. Who were the recipients of the letter that Paul is writing. It says at the beginning, the letter of Paul to the Romans. We added that, right? Rome was the center of the universe as far as power was, um, was stated at the time. To the Jew, Jerusalem was the center. To the rest of the power structure of the world, Rome was the center. Okay? They had taken over the known world. They had finished off Carthage. They had taken Greece. They ruled the Mediterranean. It was their lake. And Rome would have been the center of all this activity, all the political intrigue, all the power games, all the merchants. All the, it would have been a very multicultural city. So who were the recipients? They were the church at Rome. Observation number one, they were believers. This book is written to believers. Why is that important to us? Well, first off, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this year talking about the gospel. And we go, okay, this is written to believers. Why do you talk to believers about the gospel? Obviously, so that they will be better prepared to share the gospel with other people. And that's true. We need to understand the gospel so that we can share it to those around us. But that's only half the truth. The other half of the truth is we as believers need to hear the gospel continually. Every day we need to hear the gospel, the good news. It isn't before conversion you have the gospel, after conversion you have something else. No. It's gospel from the day you begin till the day you die till then you go to heaven. It's all gospel. And that's what the book of Galatians is all about. Oh, so you started with the gospel, now you're going back to the legalistic no. We're not going to do that. The book of Romans is written to the church at Rome, and it's written to believers. Now, where did these believers come from? Once again, another area that produces a lot of discussion. Two possibilities. They're Jews or they're not Jews. My answer, which is typical for my kind of answer, is yes. <laughs> we know that on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem for the feast, 
And the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles, and Peter got up and spoke to the people. And it was a miraculous thing, because he spoke in whatever language he spoke in, and they heard in whatever language they needed to understand. And it says thousands were saved. And that became the core of the early church, but they had come to Jerusalem, and they had to go back home. And some of them went back to Rome. So some of the church are converted Jews who have heard the gospel either from Peter at Pentecost or from other Jews who had heard it. So there's a Jewish contingency to it. But Rome, being the trading center of the world, would have had people from all over the kingdom. And if Paul is making trips throughout the uh, Greek, Macedonia, that area... He would have influenced people who then in turn went to Rome, so there would have been a Greek influence at the church. In fact, when we get to the very end, chapter 16, Paul says hi to everybody, and he goes through a list of names. Some of them are obviously people he had met in Corinth and throughout his journeys in that area. Some of them aren't. So there's obviously a group who had been under Paul's teaching, who had then gone to Rome, and they had merged with this church. And they were the church at Rome. Now, I might add that when we talk about the church at Rome, they didn't have a building, at least not that I know of. We know later when they were persecuted, they started meeting in the catacombs. So it's quite likely that this house had a church and that house had a church and there was a church over here and somebody's busily making copies of this letter and they're passing them around to the churches. Okay? That's probably the way it works. So you have a Jewish contingent, you have a Greek contingent, you have a who-knows-what-else contingent. They're all merged together. And when we work our way through the book of Romans, you're going to see... Paul repeatedly say the gospel came for the Jews first and also for the Greek. This was for the Jew and then for the Greek. This was for the, and he's going to talk about that conflict between them because he's going to end up saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anymore. I suspect that there was a certain amount of conflict. Why? Because I've been in churches all my life, and churches have conflict. Why? Because churches are made up of human beings. Sorry. I suspect those who had heard Paul's teaching had come to Rome and said, Wow, you should hear Paul. He's really got it down. And the locals said, Who is this Paul guy? In fact, why hasn't he shown up if he's so important? What is he? Is he scared to come to the big city? And so next week's lesson, we have the verse, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would they think that he was ashamed? Because he hadn't shown up. I don't know. That's next week's lesson. The book of Romans is written to a church in an exceptionally multicultural, multi-worshipping, multi-you-name-it society and what is the purpose of the book I hate to pick a verse out of the whole book to summarize the whole thing but I'm going to do it anyway skip ahead to verse 17 now let's get a running start in verse 16 for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what's the it? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is the message of the book of Romans? It is the gospel what is the gospel it is the good news it is how you and i can be saved there is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last how do we get 
the righteousness that we as sinful human beings need to enter the presence of a holy God. Yes. That was it, right there. That was what drove Martin Luther to the gospel. That's next week's lesson, but I'll tell you it anyway. The question is this. When it's talking about the righteousness of God, we know God is holy. We know God is blameless. We know God is perfect. He is righteous. So if I have to be righteous to enter his presence, hmm, I've got to be perfect, just like he is. And Martin Luther, and you, and me, and every thinking person knows that they can't do it. So what we need is a righteousness that is alien to us. We need somebody else's righteousness, somebody else who was in fact righteous, who will give us their righteousness so that we can enter the presence of God. And where do we get that? From Jesus Christ. So, Romans, in review, but it's not a review because we haven't started. (laughs) Chapter 1 of the book of Romans, the introduction to the gospel, that'll be next week's lesson, but there's a problem. There's always a problem. Before somebody will be interested in the gospel They have to accept the fact that there's bad news that the good news takes care of. And the bad news is we're all sinners. The bad news is is that the wrath of God is being shown against those who live apart from God. I told you there were a couple of reasons why I'm doing the summary today. The first of which, as I said, is to give us an overview of the whole book because that's what the uh, readers of the the letter would have received. The second reason, though, is that when we hit verse mm, 18 of chapter 1, we're going to spend a couple of chapters on the bad news, okay? Which translated means four or five weeks on the bad news, or six, or seven. Who knows? We have to understand that we as human beings, apart from Christ, are not enjoying God's pleasure. We are threatened by his wrath. And before we understand that, we will not understand or appreciate the gospel The second half of chapter 1 of the book of Romans, I think it's just so important. That's why I reference it all the time. When we talk about the fact that we should be worshiping God, but we're not. And we choose to worship something else. Chapter 2 goes into we are without excuse. I know, I know I'm not doing what God wants me to do, but you know, I'm not as bad as that person over there. I don't care. Well, you know, I'm a good Jew. Shouldn't that count? No, it doesn't matter. But wait a minute. I'm not a Jew. I haven't had access to the law. Doesn't that excuse me? No, it doesn't excuse you. Why? Because the law of God has been written on your heart. And even when you break it and you don't have it written down, you're still guilty and you know it. We're going to go one by one through the excuses. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. It is interesting because our society is full of excuses. Okay? 
Well, I'm a good person. Oh, well, I'm an American. Oh, I'm just a human being. It's like one author I read said, you know, we have this long debate about salvation by faith alone, salvation by faith plus works. Today, it's just salvation by death alone. I died, therefore I go to heaven. No. You are without excuse. Chapter 3. No one is righteous, but God gives us a righteousness that is by faith. Chapter 3 starts with that um, horrible condemnation. There is none who does what is right. There is none who do good. There is no one who wants to do good. Everybody is doing all the evil that... And you go, wait a minute, who's it talking about? Surely it's talking about that guy over there. No, it's talking about us. But there is a righteousness that we can obtain, and it comes from Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, but what about Abraham? If you're a good Jew, everything has to work through Abraham. Okay, If it doesn't work for Abraham, it doesn't work. So Paul is going to tell us how Abraham was justified by faith alone. Now that's interesting because if you've read your Bible, you know that in the book of James, when James wants to talk about works being necessary, a necessary outcome of your faith he uses abraham as his example he wasn't made righteous by his faith it was his works hmm there seems like a conflict here and the answer is yes and we'll talk about it in case you die between now and then i'll tell you the answer anyway (laughs) you have to look at the timeline of abraham's life he believed and it was credited to him as righteous. His faith produced works as evidence of that faith. And that's what James looks at and says, see, it's not a dead faith. It's not a worthless faith. It is a faith that does something. So both of them, by looking at different aspects of the life of Abraham, can use Abraham as their example. Chapter 5, but what do we get? when we receive Christ's righteousness. And there we're going to get into discussion of what we got out of, Abraham, out of Adam, our sinful nature. We'll talk about the doctrine of original sin. We'll talk about what we got for being in Adam and what we get for being in Christ. And it ends with this great passage about, wow, the more I sin, the more grace I get. Isn't that Wonderful. You can't out-sin God's grace. You can't say, well, that person, they only did this many sins, so can I, I can understand why God's grace is enough for that. But it isn't enough for me because you don't know what I've done. And the answer is, you can never out-sin God's grace. But chapter 6 starts with a great question. Okay. If the more I sin, the more grace I get, maybe I should keep sinning so I'll keep getting more grace. Doesn't that make sense? Shouldn't I keep on sinning on purpose if the more sin? And he begins, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Heck no. Why? Because you are dead to sin. And what does that mean? I mean, what could it possibly mean? Because it takes us into chapter 7, which says we still struggle with sin. If chapter 6 is true and we are dead to sin, why in chapter 7 does he say the things that I want to do I don't do, but the things that I don't want to do I keep on doing? Oh, wretched man that I am. That's chapter 7. Now, there's a discussion we'll have when we get to chapter 7. There are those who believe that chapter 7 only describes people before they become a believer. Because if chapter 6 is true and we're dead to sin, then I can't be wrestling with sin in chapter 7. All Paul is doing is reminding us of what he was before he 
became a believer. But I don't know about you. If wrestling with sin is a sign that you're not a believer, we're toast. (laughs) And we'll talk about that in chapter 7. I'll give you my answer. The only time you're not wrestling with sin is if you're dead or you've quit. You've given up. So chapter 7 ends with the verse, O wretched man that I am, who can save me from this sin? Which brings us to chapter 8. If there's a favorite chapter in a favorite book in the favorite Bible, Romans chapter 8. If you've been in this church any time at all, you know that verse 1 is Pastor Ted's favorite verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, we may spend a month in chapter 8. We may never make it out of chapter 8. We talk about living in the spirit, living in the flesh. We talk about all things work together for good, for those who love him. It ends with a discussion of who can separate us from the love of God. And he lists everything that he can think of. And the answer is no. If God's going to get you, God's going to get you. Now, if you've read lots of Paul's letters, you know they have a standard format. He begins with a discussion of theology, and he ends with the practical application of it. If you read the book of, say, Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, and 3 is our position in Christ, what it means to be saved. 4, 5, and 6 is the, okay, so what? What do we do about it? And Romans is no different. You get to chapter 8, He ends with this great doxology and praise. Who can separate us? No. And then he goes on to the so what does it mean to us? And that is chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Now, if you're thinking about it too much, you just realize that I just skipped from chapter 8 to chapter 12. 9, 10, and 11 deal with, but what about the Jews? If God made all these promises to the Jews in the Old Testament, did it not work? Were his promises null and void? Did it, did it, what happened? And this is kind of a parenthetical discussion. Okay, all of the first eight chapters, to the Jew first, to the Greek, what, what does it mean to be a Jew, blah, blah, blah. So what? What happened to the Jews? And that's what he deals with. In fact, in chapter 11, we'll see that God still has a plan in mind for the nation of Israel. And we'll have a long, heated debate about that. But it won't be nearly as long and heated as the discussion we have in chapter 9. Chapter 9 does, in fact, deal with the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. And we joke about it at times, and we have side discussions of it. We're just going to talk about it. As long as it takes, we're going to talk about it. Uh, A year or two ago, my mother in her class were working through the book of Romans, and she got to chapter 9, and she called me. So I came and taught chapter 9 so they wouldn't hate her. (laughs) Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. While they were still in the wounds, before anyone had done good or bad, I chose one. But that's not fair. Who the heck are you to tell the potter what he can and cannot do with the clay that he's working? Huh. We'd better get on with the chapter. Chapter 12 for the rest of the book is a discussion of, okay, what does this mean in our everyday life? Chapter 12 begins with the present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable 
act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world anymore, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it mean today that we follow Christ? Chapter 13, okay, that's easy enough for us collectively. What does it mean when I have to interact with, well, the authorities? And you think, you know, we have long heated political discussions, and we might have them then if I can't avoid it like the plague. But whatever you think of the form of government we have right now at this point in time, the Romans had it worse. They had an emperor who thought he was God. Okay? I didn't say that. Not going to touch that one. What does it mean when it says that all the authorities that are present right now are appointed by God and we are to submit to them? It's interesting. We'll actually probably have more of a discussion about, I don't know, maybe the American Revolution. Because they actually wrestled with that. You have the crown that established the colonies. The crown is appointed by God, so they thought. Aren't we supposed to do it? And if we rebel, are we rebelling against God? That's chapter 13 of the book of Romans. Chapter 14 is the weaker brother. What if I think something's okay and you don't? Namely, at the time, it was eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul is a big boy. He knows that there aren't any real gods behind those idols. And if the stake had been cut at the butcher shop next to the temple because the animal had been sacrificed, if the steak tasted good, enjoy it. But he also recognized that there were people who had come out of that environment for whom anything connected to that idol worship was bad. And the chapter ends with basically the discussion of everything you do has to be done by faith. Everything. Eat, drink, sleep, work, play, faith. And if you can't do it by faith, don't do it. Let everyone become convinced in their own mind what they ought to do. But we are to show deference to those who are younger in the faith, newer in the faith, and not lead them astray. I don't know. Maybe we'll have a discussion about drinking. Who knows? All in chapter 14. Chapter 15, Paul describes his ministry, what he's been doing, where he's going, why he's been ministering to the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. And chapter 16 ends with his greetings and conclusions. We go through a lot of names. It ends with a great note. We'll have a little bit of a controversy in chapter 16 because there's this name, which obviously sounds like a female name, and it says he, she, she is an apostle. Huh. It's caused controversy for years. We'll have a discussion about that. So we're done with Romans. We can go on with something else next week. <laughs> next week we will start again at verse 1 and try to make it to verse 17. As we work through this book, I would encourage you this week to read the book of Romans. It'll take you 40 minutes to an hour to read. Don't sit there and try to understand all of it if it's the first time you've ever read it. Just read it through. I'm trying to read it through every week, and I'm trying to uh, read it in a variety of different versions, so there's just a lot to it. Donald Barnhouse became the pastor of a church. First Sunday, he, taught, he preached from Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Next week, he started verse 2. He didn't make it through verse 2. 700 sermons later, 
he finished the book of Romans. If you're familiar with John Piper, John Piper is a uh, modern author, great books. You can go online and see his sermons on the book of Romans. There's about 235 of them, verse by verse. There is a lot of stuff in the book of Romans. There's a lot of stuff in the book of Romans, but the book of Romans also points us to all the rest of the scripture. I encourage you, as we spend the year working through the book, study it, be attentive to the movement of the Holy Spirit, and remember, this is not just for those who are unsaved. These are for us. This is for our friends. These are for our loved ones. These are, this is for all of us. There is no one, no one, no one, who is above and beyond the book of Romans. But more than that, there's no one, no one, no one that is beyond the grace of God. If there is still air in their lungs, the grace of God can move them. And it is interesting because when we get to chapter 9 and we talk about predestination, the biggest argument you will hear is, ew, if you believe in predestination, then that means some people, well, why bother witnessing to people? We bother witnessing to people because God told us to. The glory of the sovereignty of God is that God can overcome and save anyone. That's the glory of the sovereignty of God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us as we begin this study through the book of Romans. I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate the scriptures, that we would apply them to our lives and better understand you and your gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.